Cut, and this is The K-Cut. I'm Rachel, I write for Films Fatale, and my interests are world cinema and classic movies. James here, I produce and release music under the A-List Boutique Paul, and I am one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast. I'm Andreas, I am the creator and one of the writers of Films Fatale. I specialize in international and art house cinema, but I like a little bit of everything, and so do we all. So, uh, James, this is uh, your topic this week, I believe. What are we talking about today? Yeah, I thought it would be fun to discuss films that we think are technically flawless. There's good movies that are good all around, but there are movies that really just hit the mark as far as a production and technical standpoint. Like, you know, lighting's on point, camera works great, sounds perfect, just all around a really good production. I also thought it'd be fun to talk about not only good films we think follow this, but also bad films where the main problem is usually direction, screenplay, or acting, but everything else is just on point and it's kind of confusing like everything else is great how did you mess up these areas well i think that's a fantastic topic there are a lot of examples in history where um like rachel i know you've probably come across this because you've studied film as well you might have to watch films you don't necessarily like but because they're important for their camera work or their sound design or what technology was invented for specific movements or uh, capturing all natural lighting that sort of stuff. So I feel like uh, we're going to get some really interesting examples here. So I guess since you created the topic, James, what, what did you have in mind? What like What's your one that you're bringing up? Well, the first one I want to bring up is They Shall Not Grow Old, the Peter Jackson directed war documentary. Yes. Okay. I think that's very self-explanatory, but please explain why. It's because the entire production of this is the work of alchemy. That's the best way I can describe it because they used, I think it was over a hundred hours worth of footage and 600 hours of interviews from over 200 veterans. And he used all this material to put together this film. And he did actually a lot of really cool, almost innovative stuff. He colored everything. It was all black and white photography, but he colored it. And what he did was he actually went to the locations that were shown in these specific areas to get the feel for what the actual colors were. He even took a look at old uniforms or figured out what uniforms were used back in the day to get those exact colors. And then it's funny because there's camera movement, but it doesn't make sense because all the footage they had were all still shots. And so what he did was after scanning the negatives, they automated camera shots to actually make it look cinematic. And then the sound design was built from the ground up because all of this footage had no audio to it. So, you know, they were doing literally everything from the ground up using various methods of just general sound effects to using his own war memorabilia because he's a nerd and has a bunch of that stuff. He's also rich. So he has, you know, cannons and stuff like that. And then they even went as far as if I remember correctly, because when I saw it in theaters, they had a 30 minute featurette on the making of it, I believe. They were able to identify a lot of the soldiers. They figured out what area they were from and found voice actors to speak in their vernacular because wow. they actually overdubbed dialogue as well. So if there's any if there was anything spoken, they had, you know, lip readers figure out what was being said and they actually had it re actually recorded. And it's just this amazing spectacle. Also, he two of the main things I like about it is he didn't take a fee to make it. And even though only a fraction was used, they basically restored all of the hundred hours of footage just to help improve the archive. That's amazing. Yeah, it's just definitely something I highly recommend. If you're a fan of 
war or you know war history or if you're a fan of filmmaking i recommend it when i saw it i actually had a guy ask me if i was like a war buff and i was like no i'm actually really into filmmaking and the whole process of how this was done was just amazing it's yeah it's one of those rare things that should have been a bigger deal when it came out but it wasn't but either way i just i don't know i loved it it was just it really shows i don't want to say uh it's like the potential of what you can do with cinema like this would be an impossible feat years ago also, there was um, he actually had to go through and painstakingly figure out the right frame rates because all the cameras shot it like the, all the footage was different frame rates. So they had to go through and alter it one frame at a time to get an actual natural flow of it. Jeez. Yeah, dude, it's insane. Well, as you probably all know, uh, Rachel and I both studied film preservation and digitization and all that good stuff. So obviously we're fully on board with this type of thing. Absolutely. And I have to say that New Zealand and Australia have some of the finest film archiving in the world. So we can always learn from them. Our Peter Jackson, who's been fantastic for the New, like the New Zealand film industry and film industries uh, all across the world. So yeah, something like this is, is truly beneficial. Now, obviously, there are two ways to look at this. You know, there's the side of it where it's like, this isn't exactly what was shot and how it was displayed. So it's not a reimagination, but it's still, you know, authentic in a different sense of the word. But otherwise, as a technical achievement, it's absolutely bonkers. And I feel like it has issued in this wave of things where other people like on Instagram accounts or YouTube are taking some of like the Lumiere shots or other types of shorts using these frame rate expanding technologies and cleaning up cleaning them up even colorizing them and you can see like the 1800s or like 1902 as if it was shot like in like the 50s it's actually astounding where we've come with this type of thing it's great because he did this out of pure appreciation and I mean, I, I believe it was like, I don't remember if it was his father or grandfather who served in the war, but the fact that, you know, he wanted to help the Imperial War Museum improve their archive along with this process is just like, you know, we need more people like that. It's like, it's important. It's history. And the fact that he took a hundred hours of footage and basically tried to restore it the best he could simply for their sake and to not get paid for it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's out of uh, sheer commitment and drive. Absolutely. I will say also the world wars were very hard on the countries of the British Empire slash Commonwealth proportional to their population. So I'm sure it had a lot of resonance where it was made. Yeah, I mean, it would have to. Oh, they also used all the interviews to narrate it. I forgot to mention that where they didn't do any new narration, didn't talk to historians or anybody. It was just all these interviews intercut. And, you know, they even said it's like this isn't designed to be a World War One documentary and it's all by account of memory. So it's like, you know, the accuracy is obviously going to be a little bit in question. But just to hear these soldiers talk about their time, you know, and a lot of them were talking about how people were just signing up for the war just to sign up for the war. Mm-hmm. Like it, it wasn't even a patriotic thing. It was just like a bunch of kids. You know, there were kids that were like 16 lying about their age just to join the war. It was your chance to get out of your town. It was your chance to be something big. And of course, they used to like sugarcoated and lie about it when promoting it so a lot of people didn't really know what they were signing up for mm-hmm. anyway i think that's a fantastic example uh rachel what is your 
Well, there are some movies that you love, but you know they're flawed. And there are some movies that you technically respect, but you don't quite connect to, as you alluded to earlier. But this one is both love and enormous respect from me. And that is The Grand Budapest Hotel. Oh, shit. I love okay. this movie. Okay. Yeah, all right. As we all know, Wes Anderson is all about the details. He is the kind of person who puts every intricate little detail together to create an enormous work of art. Um, if he were uh, an old-fashioned painter, he would definitely be Hieronymus Bosch. Like That makes sense. Every single bit of a frame is full of activity. And the Grand Budapest Hotel, I think, is his masterpiece. Agreed. Because he's got this unbelievable cast. He's got everybody working at the top of their game, and he's perfected all of his little quirks, all of his ideas, and brought it into this enormous piece that, first of all, every frame is perfect. The score is phenomenal. It tells a story that you want to follow. It's exciting. It's funny. It's tragic. Um, He captures this sort of pseudo-European history in a way that's recognizable, but also its own thing. And it just casts a spell. The best movies cast a spell, and they create a world that you don't want to leave. And that was the case with the Grand Budapest Hotel with me. Every bit of it is perfect. I feel like... The Grand Budapest Hotel is, like, the place to start for people who are iffy about Wes Anderson, because, like, if they don't know his work, they might feel like it's this this art kid pretentious whatever, or, oh, it's quirky for the sake of being quirky. The film itself is narratively complex. Like, the fact that it's basically a story within a story within a story within a story. Mm-hmm. The fact that it plays with aspect ratios, which is also a nice touch. It has a genuine heart to it. I feel like some Wes Anderson films do outweigh their quirkiness over their substance but uh this one is like the perfect balance it's as funny as it is moving and actually like genuinely impactful but let's get back to the technical aspects of course his films are ascetic he's like one of the most ascetic auteurs of all time but i feel like this is a great example because the technical achievements within these aesthetics aren't appreciated enough by why like you know mass movie going audiences they see pink and blue it looks nice but it's it's all the little things so like the grand budapest in like that film itself feels like three different things to me like a moving storybook like a pop-up book with mm-hmm. like all that stuff going on like a color to 2014 version of like a silent film especially the part Absolutely. um there are like a variety of things where it's like you know like the the um the, the up-angled shot of, like, Adrian Brody chasing after Saoirse Ronan's character and, like, the way that they're, like, waltzing with, like, the camera fixed in place in the background moving past them. It looks, looks like it's out of, like, German expressionist movie making, but, like, with pinks and blues. But mm-hmm. the other thing is the process of uh, photochrome photography, which is very interesting, especially for, like, the wide shots of, like, the hotel itself or, like, when they're going skiing and stuff. Like, the fact that it looks like it's flattened, but it still pops, but not as much as, like, a high-def 3D movie, but it's, like, if it's it pops via layering. There is so much crazy stuff going on where this is so much harder than it looks. And, you know, it looks like a sugary wonderland, but it's really, like, a crazy series of technological achievements where it's... Taking old styles, whether it's the photochrome or the silent movie stuff, taking old styles, bringing them back here, modernizing them, turning them authentically his. 
there's so much going on with this film and the way that it was made. It's It really is stupendous. It's a world that looks lived in, but is also too good to be true. Oh, yeah. Yes. Definitely. This is one of my favorite movies ever, especially because I got to see it in theaters and I'm so glad I did because like you said, all all the film, it's almost you know, expanded when you see it on the big screen, like watching on the TV just doesn't do it enough justice. And just seeing all the details. It's funny. I have a, I posted a joke. I said, uh, if Stanley Kubrick and Woody Allen had a baby, that baby would be Wes Anderson. And this is actually a good example of that because he's got like the technical prowess of Kubrick. And it's, I think the only person who's ever been able to match that is uh, current Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah. Just like all the, you know, especially with how busy a lot of the scenes are, like there's a lot going on in a single frame that you don't realize, especially just like the characters alone. And then just stuff like even, the whole set itself is just so detailed and layered. It's like you said, sugary wonderland. It's like, think of a very, you know, artistically decorated cake, but you cut open the inside and the cake in the, the filling that's been baked, it just reflects the outside. So it's like on the outside, it's very layered and sugary, but on the inside, it's like this very dense and layered thing. And yeah, also it's the one film where he didn't use any pop music for the soundtrack. It was just all, you know, orchestral. And when it takes place in more somber times, when it's a darker turn, it never really loses that otherworldliness, even though it's bringing it back down to earth at the same time. Exactly. And Alexander Deplat actually won an Oscar for this film. So yep. it cleaned up at the technicals and I think it was the most awarded film that year or it was in the top or tied top. for it yeah. at least. I think it and Birdman actually got four or yeah. something. The Birdman which, won all the big ones. Yeah. But like for all the technical ones, usually like to again to the common movie going audience, it's like technical awards, it's like, yeah, it's not just what the wardrobes and stuff or like the music. It's like incredibly well made this and it's a big reason i love wes anderson in general but this film in particular is a big reason why i'm stupidly excited for the french dispatch because oh i can't wait for that to come out it's not even just like a good cast and a great premise that looks like he's pushing his cinematic boundaries again like he did with this one and knowing that because like i love moonrise kingdom but it feels like he's within his bubble that he loves being in and the same thing with Steve Zissou. And the same thing with the Royal Tenenbaums. This feels like he's pushing himself again. And it's like, how is he going to make a film like this? So I'm like very excited for that. And I've waited way too long. From my perspective, Budapest is what brought Anderson from good to great. Yeah, like a good director with a lot of singular films, like a, like a Tim Burton. But now he's like worthy of being in the conversation with the greats. I feel like, you know, that and like Isle of Dogs, which I feel like is a pretty underrated film. Um, That's like his most serious film, which is weird because it's about talking dogs. But when he said it was very uh, Kurosawa, he didn't mean just because it takes place in Japan, like the poetic nature of it. He's really pushing his own boundaries. Oh, there's another fun fact I remembered from that. If I remember this correctly, he actually had the entire film storyboarded frame by frame. And that is all that was shot. For uh, Isle of Dogs? Grand Budapest. Actually, you could see some of those animated on Instagram accounts that do like a lot of those uh, retrospective related things. I've seen some of those. Like I've seen um, the storyboarding for the scene where Adrian Brody's character starts like uh, punching Ray Fiennes and then like Zero punches him and then Will Defoe punches him. <laughs> you can see the storyboarding for it. And it's like, yeah, literally like each hand motion, 
everybody is standing exactly where they end up in the film. Like this thing was like clearly figured out well beforehand. Also, every time this movie comes up, I have to register my displeasure again that Ray Fiennes did not get an Oscar nomination. Rob. At least a nomination. Like, come yeah, on. that's kind of disappointing. <laughs> he wasn't going to win, but a nomination. Mm-hmm. He's like th- that might be like his best role, and that's saying a lot because the guys in Schindler's List, The English Patient, Constant Gardner, Quiz mm-hmm. Show, amazing, etc. Yeah, the guy's a legend. It's also one of those uh, movies where Wes Anderson's one of those directors. It's like a you know, uh, on another episode of a director who can get literally anybody he wants just because they want to be in his movies. He revived Bill Murray's career. And I think everybody said, I actually prefer this Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. How could I be in, a, in on this club? So he's got everybody. Francis McDormand, Tilda Swinton, uh, like um, Edward Norton. So guess what? Now, like the club is only expanding. So sure, why not? I don't know. I'm really excited for the French Dispatch because Timothy Chalamet is in there. And it's like, he basically is just a Wes Anderson movie character in real life. Yes. So I'm really interested to see him in an actual Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, because like, you know, he he's made for like these weird, quirky, auteur type films. Because like, even that Super Bowl spot where he's like uh, Edward Scissorhands' son, like Ed or yeah. whatever it is, even that's like... That might be his only brush with a Tim Burton movie, but he fit perfectly. <laughs> so, so how do we get Burton and Anderson to work together on something? Oh, if Burton produced it, so it was like his costume designers that he always works with, and Anderson directing, mm-hmm. and they collaborate on on a script, that could actually work perfectly. I would watch that to death. That would be very interesting. Why haven't they worked together yet? Who knows? Probably too many cooks. Maybe. Speaking of too many cooks, I could tell you which two filmmakers could work together. Moving on to my one now. A certain Emmerich Pressburger and Michael Powell, who are uh, known worldwide as the Archers. And before the Coen brothers existed or were even born, these two were the greatest filmmaking partnership in the history of cinema. And I could pick like dozens of films that they made but i have to pick just one my selection is the red shoes which is actually one of my great like one of my absolute favorite movies of all time and it's consistently ranked as one of the best of the 40s yeah i actually placed it as like my number one film of the 40s yes even above citizen king which i also adore but come on like this is the red shoes so what i love about the red shoes and this is also one of um Martin Scorsese's favorite films of all time. Like, this is, like, his film where it's, like, if you need to see one, it's The Red Shoes. So, The Red Shoes... How many times can I say The Red Shoes? The Red Shoes is uh, amazing because it's a very engaging fable about, you know, the the titular, um, you know, things you put on your feet. So, I don't say The Red Shoes again. And... uh, (laughs) And their over-possessive power, but the lengths that Powell and Pressburger go through to make this into like a fully realized, almost like a cinematic opera or like a cinematic stage production, except with the capabilities of cinema. So already the film is brilliant. And, you know, if you're looking at technical achievements of the 30s and 40s, most people pick Citizen Kane, which is still one of the greats. Some people pick Gone with the Wind, which I don't really care for too much as a story. But yeah, the way it's made is fantastic. Or Children of Paradise, which was like, you know, the the Parisian answer to that film. But I've got to go with this one. You know, it's got a lot of the things that those other films have. 
the the camera operation capabilities, the use of angles, the use of uh, you know bright colors or in Citizen Kane and children's cases, you know the use of shadows and lighting. But the archers, as far as I'm concerned, are like the masterminds of Technicolor. So there's that side of it. But what really sells this film for me in this discussion are the surreal sequences where it's like, um, like the lead ballet dancer like hopping into the shoes and they're tying themselves, or like, uh, you know, the transformations, or like all of these illusions that happen. Even if they don't make logical sense, they're like some of the most mesmerizing things I've ever seen in any film ever, and. I could, again, list a bunch of films that they have done. A very close second that I was considering for this was Black Narcissus, which doesn't mm-hmm. have as many interesting effects, but is, like, my answer to, like, my favorite Technicolor film, that and Suspiria. So, otherwise, The Red Shoes is just so crazily made. As If you watch this, because, James, you have not seen this, correct? I have not, but I've been meaning to. If you watch this, you would be like... How in the hell is this not from the 60s or 70s? How yeah. is this 1948? <laughs> that's awesome. I think that's one of David Fincher's favorite films. That wouldn't surprise me. That's all the more reason. I, I, I have a feeling you've seen this, correct, Rachel? I saw it when I was way too young to appreciate it. It was on TV or something. But I have seen other Powell and Pressburger when I was older. The number one phrase I would use to describe their films is rich. It's like eating a very sumptuous dessert or something like that. It's a very deep experience. My most memorable encounter with them was The Tales of Hoffman, which I actually saw on Nitrate in Rochester. No, really? And for a film with such incredible technicolor, which was one of their most famous trademarks, I would say if you ever get the chance all of you listening out there to see a Powell and Pressburger on nitrate, like do not pass go see it. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, just to like sell the point yet again, James, some of the best visuals you'll ever see, never mind of the forties or fifties, like some of the best you'll ever see are from films of theirs. You know what film you'd be very interested in actually, James? It's, um, it's not by both of them. It's just by Michael Powell. It's called Peeping Tom, which was like... I've heard of that. Yeah, so like the precursor to all of these like slasher films, and it actually destroyed its entire career. And it came out the same year as Psycho in a very strange coincidence. Yeah, well, Psycho, Psycho was daring, but I feel like it knew how to press buttons and not alienate all audiences. People saw this film and they're like, what the hell is this? Like, what did you do? Because it's so much more like perverse like i do prefer psycho but peeping tom itself is a masterpiece it's so much more like perverse and like desperate feeling and i guess because it's a color it's got like that extra like discomfort with like you know certain colors being used wink wink nudge nudge i think that's definitely up your alley like it's it's new hollywood before that even existed i'll definitely have to check that out yeah but that worked i feel like with the passage of time that film worked the red shoes certainly worked what films didn't work despite their fantastic technical achievements? That's what we're going to talk about now in the second half. So, uh, James, what did you have in mind? I'm going to go with 2011's Red State, written and directed by Kevin Smith. Oh, see, I don't even know what that is. I've never even heard of that. It is a horror thriller movie that he wrote. It is very unlike any of his other movies. 
almost to a fault, but there are some things he gets right. The production of it, it is made like a thriller in every aspect. The problem is the direction and the writing. He should have given this screenplay to somebody else to kind of tinker with and have somebody else direct it because his direction and writing is what hold it back. Uh-huh. For better or for worse, Kevin Smith will always be Kevin Smith, no matter what genre he tries to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the camera works great. The score is great. You know, the lighting, the color. It has the feel of a thriller movie. And he has Michael Parks. And, you know, and, and he's great at it, obviously. But it's just certain choices that he makes really hold it back from being something that it could have been more. And also he also kind of almost like derailed his career with the way he decided to distribute it because leading up to its festival premiere, he said he was going to auction off the rights to distribute it. And then like last minute bait and switch surprise, I'm going to distribute it myself. So there were people who weren't too happy about that, which I think it probably could have benefited from a traditional release. Yeah, it's like it's a great attempt at something that could have been good, but unfortunately, his own quirks hold it back from being great because he does still make Kevin Smith decisions, even on something that is shouldn't be a Kevin Smith flick. I mean, I give it by props for trying, but yeah, there was just so much that went right, and it's just these certain things. It's like, man, this could have been amazing, but what's a Kevin Smith decision in a horror thriller film? I think it's just the way he directs and just the fact that just his dialogue could have been tailored to fit the more thriller motif because it's just a little too wordy. Like it's his movies are talking head movies and it's like there are times where he tries to throw a little bit of humor and it doesn't always work. And so if he wrote the story and sold it to somebody else to actually flesh out as a screenplay, that might've worked. Yeah. It was also a film designed to criticize the Westboro Baptist church. So that was another thing. So it's like, Ooh, okay. Was he trying too much at once? Yeah. It's just, you know, he just really just didn't hit the mark with it. I don't know. Like I, I know people who love it, but they're Kevin Smith fanboys and they love everything he does. And I just look at it like, man, this, this could have been good, but I'm guessing with the Westboro Baptist church, this was clearly a mission that he didn't want anyone else to partake in. Like he wanted to say what he wanted to say, which I don't blame him. Cause do I need to say more? But uh, it just ended up in a film that wasn't very good, it sounds like. Yeah, he actually invited members of the church to watch the film. Oh, my God. And they went. They <laughs> yeah, they did. They did. They didn't stay for the whole thing. And I don't remember. Like, he tells the story of it, and it just seems like they just sort of left. Like, it wasn't even, like, a reaction thing. They just sort of left. I, it doesn't surprise me. But, yeah, it, I think if he would have done this differently and gave it to somebody else it would have been better but yeah this was yeah he was trying to do he said the reason he did it because with clerks he kind of got like mainlined into the system immediately with major distribution and like the traditional system and he thought he needed to spend some time trying to push an independent film as an independent filmmaker independently so he released it under his own banner and yeah it's just it's just one of those instances where you know you try to curl outside the lines but you know, you can only color outside the lines so much without depending on who you your, are. Yeah, because like I haven't seen it yet, obviously. But last night in Soho, that doesn't look like it's by Edgar Wright. But at the same time, I'm not surprised that it is by him. Or like again, the French Dispatch. It's still a Wes Anderson film through and through, but he can like still adapt to genres. And like, have either of you seen Isle of Dogs? No. I've seen I Love Dogs. I love I Love Dogs. So, uh, yeah, you'll know what I mean, James, when I say it's still Wes Anderson, but it's still like 
a huge departure from like the Royal Tenenbaums or something where it's like so much right. more um, heartfelt and so much more like about these emotions rather than trying to be different. Did you um, know last night in Soho and French Dispatch come out on the same day? I do know that. <laughs> That's amazing. We got to make it a double bill. Yeah, let me tell you, the pandemic better be wrapped up. Otherwise, I'm going to be the most bothered person in all Toronto if I can't see those back-to-back in a movie theater. If I can't, I'm officially moving. (laughs) I'll come to the States. We got theaters open. Oh, don't remind us. I will go to Detroit. I will go to Michigan to watch this. You've heard it here, folks. So... Speaking of all that good stuff, Rachel, what wouldn't you go out of your way to see, despite its technical achievements? Okay, so this was a movie that really should have worked. It has an astonishing cast. Like, if you lined up all the Oscar nominations, then it would have been, like, it it was enormous. It's an enormous list. You've got a director who is seasoned with musicals and who has already produced or directed an Oscar-winning movie. Um, You've got material coming from a Tony-winning musical that was based on an award-winning movie that's an all-time classic. It should have worked. Every single person was working at the top of their game in this, and yet this movie somehow collapsed. And I am talking about Nine, directed by Rob Marshall and starring everybody. Uh, The worst Daniel Day-Lewis film in history. Yes, I don't get how this happened, because it it had all the right ingredients. There's nothing even really that wrong with it when you watch it. Like, you can't really say anybody's doing all that badly. And yet the ingredients just don't come together to make a compelling story. It makes absolutely no sense. So you've got really beautiful visuals. The songs are on point. There aren't really any bad performances. And yet it just doesn't hang as a movie. I feel like I know what the problem is having grappled with it since young, impressionable teenage me first saw it and was just devastated. Yeah. It's obviously based on Eight and a Half by Federico Fellini, which is one of the greatest films of all time. Mm-hmm. And Fellini has a very specific shooting style in general, but especially when he's shooting like the Italian elite or like the the, the upper class. It's like the sleekest, most fashionable cinema you'll ever watch. Like if you watch Eight and a Half or La Dolce Vita, he's got some other stuff like La Strada, but that fashionable stuff in general, that's something a lot of people try to strive for because mm-hmm. it's like when they first think of Fellini, they're not thinking of Satyricon, they're thinking of this. So I feel like in Marshall's case, and he's directly ad- adapting Eight and a Half, which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, this was like a production, right? Like, like, this was on the stage? This was a Broadway musical, so he could have gone full-blown theatrical in the other direction, and it would have made sense. Like, he didn't really have to stick to eight and a half. Exactly. So he stuck to eight and a half, but instead of a high life, which is textured, like Fellini is capable of, you mm-hmm. get what I call, and I've said this since 2009, you get what I call just a really long car commercial like, it's yeah. just as vapid as a Toyota commercial, which Toyota commercials are fine, whatever. But for, like, two hours, it just doesn't work. It's like you're watching a commercial with that's void of any care or heart or anything, despite the best efforts. Like, Penelope Cruz was nominated. Marion Cotillard did a great job. Daniel Day-Lewis did as well as he could. Yeah, but this was supposed to be the Oscar darling of the season. It was supposed to be one of the big films of the year, and it just didn't did not click. 
No, it's it's just lifeless. Yeah, Marshall to me is very much a music video style director, and that can work in some circumstances. It was perfect for Chicago because of its subject matter, mm-hmm. but it just wasn't deep enough for this. I think. Yeah, I think he knew how to replicate Fellini aesthetically, but had zero idea how to get into like the ethos of like a Fellini film. Yeah, and his movies are gorgeous to look at. They really are fun, but. Yeah. I think Chicago's the only one I know of that really succeeded. And even then, as much as I like Chicago, I don't think it stuck the landing at the end. But there are parts of Chicago that are like actual genius. Like, um, so I don't want to. <laughs> exactly. There's that. Or like, you know, the uh, the tap dance, which I featured on my list the other day, the tap dance, uh, tap dancing around the witnesses, like in the courtroom yeah. or um, some other great parallels between like the legal system and being a lawyer and the life of crime and the jailhouses and musicals. There's a lot of good stuff going on. So I don't think he's like incapable. I think he just sometimes gets misguided. Yeah. And I think he needs the right material. Yep. That ain't that the truth, which speaking of the right material. Okay. Um, Mine might get me into some hot water. It depends on who I talk to. I think with both of you, I'll be okay. I'm a very big fan of Nicholas Winding Refn in general. I think Only God Forgives is just completely void of just anything tangible. Anything. I get it. This film was uh, a tribute to the works of Alejandro Jodorowsky, which is what it says at the end of the film. It's dedicated to him. In the same way, I feel like Marshall just completely missed the point of Fellini films. And Neon Demon, Refn did a better job with that sort of a thing. But I feel like in this particular instance, he completely missed the amount of meta of uh, metaphysical philosophy that Jodorowsky has in The Holy Mountain or in El Topo. Completely missed that. Plus, like Jodorowsky, he went all out, which I, I can't say the same thing for Only God Forgives. Like, they're not even, like, similar on that front. But that's not the point of a movie. The point of the movie is to, like, make sense it's, or, you know, at least be interpretational in a good way. Only God Forgives visually is just unspeakable. Like, it's just breathtaking to look at. Like, the the neon colors or, like, the deep red hues and, like, the, the lime greens and um, all the other crazy colors that it works with. The score at times is a bit questionable, but in general, it's just fantastic. And there's a lot of great stuff going on with, like, you know, the camera movement or, like, the use of natural lighting or, you know, the placement of the camera. But it's just completely butchered by my least favorite Ron Gosling performance that I've seen by beyond pornographic dialogue. Like, it's just garbage it's just garbage dialogue and some storytelling which is just completely mindless but tries to replace its holes with profoundness which you can't earn profoundness just by putting it in there like i get the symbolisms of you know who god is and the beheadings i get i get all of that it, you can't just put that in there you have to earn you have to earn all of this. And it, I just don't think it did. Also, it's one of the most mean-spirited films I've ever seen, especially without a like a focused point. So it just yeah, felt... Yeah, stuff just kind of so, happens. Yeah, it just felt so worthless. And I felt like I wanted to break a chair afterwards. Like, it just was not an enjoyable film experience. 
Oh, wow. Like I said, it makes you so angry. Like, it's just so angry, that film, but without a real direction. And, like, excuse my language. I'm just going to quote something from the film. Whose mother, mob connection or not, talks about her own son's genitalia? Like, the dialogue in this film oh, is just yeah. garbage. The dialogue in this film is just so stupid. <laughs> yeah, I like Nicholas Winding Refn, but yeah, that wasn't a great movie. Did you know the the reason for how uh, the interesting contrast was color palette? Did you know that's not a creative choice? He's colorblind. He can't see medium colors, so the colors have to be that contrasted in order for him to see it. That's super interesting. I did not know that. Yeah, it's like, not it's not a creative choice. It's like he can't see medium colors, so it's like he has to have it like really popping and you know highly contrasted. That's why you know, it, and it works because it's like you have this really real depth of color in there, but it has nothing to do with like a creative thing. He literally just can't see it otherwise. Because like Drive has pinks and purples, but it's also heavily indebted to the the strategy of using blues and oranges, which is used in like every promotional tool and like every trailer ever seen since like the nineties. So there's some clear direction in some of his films, at least. Some of the most creative moments in cinema have been born from necessity, really. Yeah, or like, you know, outside of cinema you have Tony Iommi who invented metal because he uh his, you know, his fingers were chopped off in a in a sawing accident, I think, and he had to like down tune his guitar so it wouldn't hurt his fingers as much, and thus metal was born. So sometimes there's like these adaptations that are needed that just accidentally create things. So I didn't, you know, because Nicholas Winding Refn films are like visually stunt, they're visually stunning. So I did not know that. Actually, I actually found out something interesting because um, I was looking more into that Wong Kar Wai box set because I, after seeing Chunking Express, I'm like, okay, I got to get this box set. Apparently, they were talking about Fallen Angels and how this new restoration doesn't have the black and white scenes. And the reason that is, is because when they first shot it, they weren't supposed to be black and white. There was a scene that didn't work unless it was black and white due to some technical error or something so they made certain scenes black and white to carry over a theme so it wasn't a creative uh, choice it was literally like this only we can't have one black and white sequence it has to be repetitive through the film so it's like yeah it's just all those weird things where accidents you know accidents cause like some of the most artistic moments and it's unintentional it's 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 beautiful how it happens sometimes but it's always funny like yeah this really wasn't something we planned for it just sort of happened and we went with it but it's funny because so many people like, you know, yours truly, myself, would probably be like, oh, this is to try and convey the two sides of the human nature when really it was just a workaround because, you know, it just wasn't working. Yeah. And with the new scans, they could actually fix it. Some of the most creative dialogue in cinema is because censorship wouldn't let the people talk about what they were actually talking about. Right. There's that side of it, too. Until, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, which just didn't care. And... Uh, thus everybody involved was arrested and uh, deported out of the country. No, luckily it didn't happen, but you know, it, it, obviously that caused a big stink, but yeah, uh, these films, despite their flaws are still technically advanced. So they're worth checking out to some degree, of course. Otherwise we're going to start signing everything off with our weekly recommendations. But first of all, I want to plug our social media. We're available on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the K cut. 
And for our Cinema Smorgasbord for July, we are going to be watching the movie Supernova, starring Colin Firth and Stanley Tucci. So uh, if you want to join along, go, go ahead and watch it at home. Awesome. Yes. Please follow along so you don't miss an episode. And we've got some exciting stuff down the pipeline. But we've got some exciting stuff now as well. So, James, what are you going to recommend this week? I'm going to recommend a film that I think is technical perfection, given the genre. I'm going to go 1995's Mortal Kombat. Okay. Because this is a technical spectacle. And regardless of how you feel in the direction of dialogue, I still love it. And it's one of the best video game movies ever made. Especially special effects are on point. Like, much better than I feel like should have been in 1995. Unlike the Mortal Kombat sequel, which just looks... Yeah, that was awful. I don't know how that happened. Had too bad you and, and, and all the recasting that happened. It's like, yo, what happened? Like, you had a good thing going and you ruined it. Uh, well, I mean, it, it'd be like that sometimes. <laughs> Rachel, what, what are you going to recommend this week? I'm going to get off the technical masterpiece train for this movie, which has interesting subject matter and very heavy subject matter. So I would suggest checking it out before you watch the film. And that is the Magdalene Sisters, which is one of the most famous films ever to come out of Ireland. And it's about a very tragic chapter of history. But I think it's very important to see and it's got phenomenal performances by all the women involved in the movie and just very important to watch. Cool. That sounds like uh, I haven't actually seen that. So I'm going to have to check that out. You really should. You know, I'm still like thinking aesthetically because of, you know, talking about Nicholas Winding Griffin and uh, the red shoes and stuff on my end. Not really the same thing, but just because I can't stop thinking about aesthetic films that are like philosophical i'm just going to go with a very obvious one stalker by andre tarkovsky which um if you've seen annihilation that film is very heavily indebted to this one it's a very very deep film about the traveling to this place called the zone where your wishes are supposed to come true but the deeper they go the more like you know the film changes color at one point and then a weird crap just kind of starts arising and then like the people on on foot heading towards this this zone start to go delirious it's an unreal cinematic experience i can't say any more than that and it's one of the most popular at the toronto national film festival year round so it's developing a cult following if it hasn't already it's one that i feel like any cinephile should watch even if they like it or not just to see like this film because there's none, none other like it even annihilation so all right then Yeah, fantastic. Thank you for joining us this week. That was the K-Cut, and now we're going into the L-Cut. 